which features five outstanding colleagues from UCD speaking about a range of topics relating to cultural policy, visual and material culture, space and the built environment. Um, as I said, we've got five papers. So what I was going to suggest was that we take the first three and then we have a few questions and then we'll take our little breather and then we'll have the final two papers and uh, a few questions at the end. I hope that's okay. I would like to ensure that everybody gets the question and it might work better that way. So moving <clears throat> very swiftly on, our first speaker is Kathleen James Chakraborty, Professor of Architectural History at UCD School of Art, Hil History and Cultural Policy. And uh, Kathleen's distinguished career culminated this year in the award of a gold medal in the humanities. And she's the author of many monographs and edited volumes, far too numerous to name check here, but I might just mention her latest monograph published in 2018 under the title Modernism as Memory, Building Identity in the Federal Republic of Germany. And today she's going to speak on the topic of Afro-European modernism. So I'll let you take the floor, Kathleen. The World's Fair staged in New York in 1939 and again in 1940 has long been recognized as an important moment in the history of the dissemination of modern European architecture internationally. Michael Scott designed the shamrock-shaped Irish pavilion, which was upstaged by the counterpart Alvar Aalto designed for Finland. Lucia Costa and Oscar Niemeyer, who would later team up on the design of Brasilia, were responsible for another attention-getting pavilion, while American consumerism was represented by Norman Belgetti's design of Futurama for the General Motors Corporation. In comparison, the building by three of Belgium's most significant 20th century architects has received relatively little attention. This is particularly surprising and it is one of the few remnants of the fair to survive. And yet it sits uncomfortably within the history of modern architecture for at least two very different reasons, both related to race. First, as these details of the bas relief, uh, which I thought I had here and I don't, let's see, oh, uh, sorry. Oh, there it is, uh, by Arthur Dupont illustrating the Belgian Congo make clear the building contained a celebration of what is now widely recognized as one of the most inhumane of all European colonial regimes. Let's see if I've got this right here. Yeah. Second, it now sits on the campus of Virginia Union University, a historically black uh, school in what was the capital of the Confederacy where its 165-foot tower is a local marker of African-American ambition and pride. I had hoped by the time I presented this paper to have traveled to Richmond to revisit the building and to begin to explore the archives related to it at Virginia Union. In the interim, I have benefited greatly from Brian Clark's Green's pioneering scholarship on it, perusing digital copies of the pages of the Pittsburgh Courier, then America's leading African-American newspaper, and the local Richmond Times-Dispatch has leaded, yielded insights, especially into the Tower's role as a memorial to the Courier's late editor, Robert L. Vaughan. The Courier described the building in 1941, the Tower, as the largest memorial ever built for a Negro in America, 1941 language. My ambition is to co-edit a book with Green that will draw attention to one of the most important interwar importations of European modern architecture to the United States and explore the uncomfortable insights it offers into the relationship between race and modern architecture. The first context for understanding the building is the self-presentation of the Belgian government in an international context. Van de Velde had led a different team that designed a building in a similar style for the fair held in Paris two years previously. 
but that had lacked the prominent tower of the, of the Belgian Friendship Building, as it's called at, BV, at VUU. The prominent location of both pavilions was due to Belgium's position as a Western European victim of Axis aggression in World War I. The architecture was far from radical, but it made a decisive break with Belgium's earlier self-presentation through buildings that referenced its historic architecture. Van de Velde, already 76 in the spring of 1939, had in the 1890s and the first decade of the new century been one of Europe's leading design reformers and modern architects, founding the Grand Ducal School of Arts and Crafts in Weimar that he handed over to Walter Gropius, who transformed it into the Bauhaus. His post-war reputation in Belgium was badly damaged, however, by his work for the collaborationist government, into which he was drawn by his friendship with the Labour Party leader, Henri de Man. Buildings like the Book Tower for the University of Ghent, although impossible for inhabitants of and visitors to that city to overlook, have been left out of histories of modern European architecture, almost certainly for this reason. Interwar Belgium was one of Europe's most intensely industrialized nations, but as a small country wedged between France, Luxembourg, Germany, and the Netherlands, it took particular pride in the, its control of Sub-Saharan Africans' largest political unit, the Belgian Congo, which featured prominently on the exterior of the building, as well as the exhibitions originally mounted within it. Already, Roger Casement's 1904 report on abuses in the Congo, then the private fiefdom of King Leopold II, had led the Belgian government in 1908 to take control of the territory, but its view of its own enlightened self-rule of the area has seldom been upheld by subsequent scholarship, to put it mildly. The outbreak of World War II and Germany's successful invasion of Belgium meant that the pavilion, which had been designed to be demountable for transport back to Belgium to serve as a university building for the colonial university in Antwerp that trained civil servants to go out to the Congo, remained in the United States where it was given to VUU, which raised the money to reassemble it in Richmond. This story has been entirely overlooked in accounts of the transmission of European modern architecture to the United States, which focus entirely on white actors. Apparently, the prominent exhibition of black bodies on the exterior of the building, and that's not what you see in the background of the, uh, on the right, which is the sculptures instead of Belgian workers, and VUU's ties to African-American missionaries in Africa played little, if any, role in the decision to award the building to Richmond, although until I have access to archives, I will be unable to confirm this. What is clear is the spirit of optimism with which both the Belgian government in exile gave and VUU received the building. At the groundbreaking in Richmond, the representative of the Belgian government declared, every European who, who travels to the United States is impressed by the contribution of the Negro community to United States culture. A Burmi an African-American Birmingham, Alabama columnist paraphrased the same speaker as noting, and I quote the African-American columnist, the gift of a colonial empire to a Negro university, the gift of a Catholic country to a Baptist school, the symbol of human understanding and goodwill, and the negation of racial prejudice of hatred and violence, end quote. The Courier described it as, and I quote, ushering in a new era in international goodwill, inter interracial relations, and Negro education. It doubled the size of the facilities at BUU and enabled the university to plan to double its enrollment. Several speakers equated the suffering of the Belgians under German occupation 
with the plight of American blacks. The story of the Belgian building suggests that the assumed alliance of modern architecture and progressive politics is a great deal more complicated than most scholars would like to think. On the one hand, the building was designed in support of an avowedly racist regime by a man who would soon collaborate with Belgium's German occupiers in support of his ambition to advance the cause of modern architecture in the country. On the other, this same building became an icon of local black empowerment even before students at VUU assumed prominent roles in the civil rights movement, with a VUU graduate, Douglas Wilder, for whom the replacement library, they outgrew these facilities, is now named, uh, became the first elected black governor of an American state. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kathleen, for that really fascinating and very timely paper too. Thank you. Um, okay, um, we can move on now to Douglas, I think, yeah. Um, Douglas is a colleague of mine from the School of Languages, Cultures and Linguistics. Um, Douglas is an Associate Professor in French and his example, his work is an excellent example, I think, of the richness and breadth of scholarship in modern languages. And again, there are too many publications to name check, but I'll just say that not only has Douglas translated Nietzsche, but he's also published widely on space and material culture, critical theory, literature and cinema. And today, He's going to talk about the Paris Boulevard Périphérique as transnational infrastructure. So thank you very much, Douglas. Thanks very much, um, Gillian, and thank you everybody, and uh, especially the organizers of, of, of this event, um, which is uh, giving me um, a lot of, of, of food for thought already. So um, the purpose of this presentation is to suggest how the Paris Ring Road which began life as a major national infrastructure project, has been reimagined within contemporary French culture in what could be described as transnational terms. This involves some consideration of the history and prehistory of the Ring Road, an examination of how it was perceived in the 1970s, and finally, an exploration appraised since the turn of the millennium. The central question is really one of two prefixes, namely how the peri-urban relates to the transnational. The Boulevard Périphérique is a multi-layer central Paris. Incorporates 50 nations and 80 bridges. A massive engineering project that took 17 years to complete and was finally inaugurated in April 1973. From the point of view of traffic management, the Ring Road had a double purpose. First, to ease congestion by allowing both long distance and local traffic to bypass the city centre. And second, to link the city more effectively to its surrounding suburbs and new towns. The Ring Road represents a key element in the reconfiguration of the Paris region under the Fifth Republic presidencies of Charles de Gaulle and his protégé Georges Pompidou between 1958 and 1974. It symbolises the commitment of Gaullism to infrastructural development and transport technology as twin instruments of national modernization. In parallel with the supersonic airliner Concorde, which made its first transatlantic flight in September 1973, and the capital's new international airport at Roissy, which would be opened the following year, the Périphérique suggested that France was confidently accelerating into the future. The future, however, turned out to be rather slower than anticipated. The oil crises of 1973 and 74 quite literally put the brakes on 30 years of French economic development. The end of the era of cheap oil, 
and growing ecological awareness cast the technology of internal combustion in a negative light. Instead of embodying an ideology of modernization via technology and functioning as a symbol of national prestige, the Ring Road became rather a symbol of national malaise and urban discontent associated with traffic jams, noise and air pollution. Perhaps the best known work of fiction to capture this image of the Ring Road is Jean-Patrick Manchette's countercultural thriller, Le Petit Bleu de la Côte Ouest, translated. Um, a novel which begins and ends with his protagonist speeding around the périphérique in the early hours of the morning, high on a mixture of drugs and alcohol. The novel tells the story of a comfortably off but disenchanted middle manager named Georges Gerfaux, who stumbles across a politically motivated contract killing. At the end of the novel, having witnessed, escaped, and then himself perpetrated lethal violence, Gerfaux returns to his normal professional and domestic routine, which includes completing nocturnal circuits of the ring road. Ultimately, Manchette's social commentary, informed by the leftist thinking of the period, suggests that his protagonist's behavior is symptomatic of a dysfunctional capitalist society. And I quote, so the English is on the right here, the reason why Georges is currently speeding around the ring road with diminished reflexes, that reason must be sought above all in Georges' place in the relations of production. The fact that Georges is orbiting Paris at 145 kilometers an hour merely indicates that Georges is of his time and also of his space." Unquote. To borrow the terminology of the Russian critic Mikhail Bakhtin, the Paris Ring Road appears here as a chronotope of late capitalism, an articulation of time and space constituting a closed circuit of acceler acceleration that leads nowhere fast, a place where speed and stasis are indistinguishable and where progress has cancelled itself out. So far, in tracing the transformation of the ring road from a symbol of national prestige into a symbol of national malaise, we have not only remained within the ideological framework of the nation, but also significantly followed the perspective of the motorist. The view from the road, to quote the title of the classic 1964 book on motorway design by Donald Appleyard, Kevin Lynch, and John R. Meyer. But the Paris ring road is not just a road as its prehistory reveals. The Boulevard Périphérique occupies the site of the former ring of fortifications of 1740 to defend Paris from military attack. In 1860, this line of defense became the official city limit. The fortifications were flanked by a zone construction was forbidden, a zona non aedificandi in bureaucratic Latin. From the late 19th century, this ban was little enforced and the so-called zone frequently became the site of self-building shantytown development. Following the First World War, the fortifications were officially decommissioned as military structures and acquired by the city. Plans were drawn up to demolish the fortifications, clear the adjacent zone, and use the resulting space for a mixture of social housing, sporting facilities, and greenbelt. Some of these initiatives were implemented, but with the growing importance of motorized transport after the Second World War, part of the belt was allocated instead to the construction of a ring road. Significantly, the ring road doesn't just follow the topographic trace of the former structures on its site. It also perpetuates their supposedly superseded functions. Effectively, the ring road is not just a road. It is also a wall and a zone-like habitat. 
The ring road operates as a wall insofar as it represents a clear barrier separating central Paris from its suburbs, and in particular from its poorer, more ethnically mixed suburbs. But the ring road also remains a zone or place of unauthorized habitation. The interstices of its sprawling infrastructure have frequently been appropriated by a range of socially marginal groups that don't necessarily have a place in either the traditional urban core or the outlying suburbs, and so find refuge in a peri-urban space located between the two. So such groups as the homeless, the undocumented, prostitutes, drug addicts, and so forth. The Ring Road's parallel functions as wall and habitat foreground issues of exclusion, belonging and appropriation that have drawn the attention not only of urbanists, but also of numerous writers and filmmakers, particularly since the turn of the millennium. And I just want to talk about two instances here. Um, so Jean Roland's non-fiction text, La Clôture of 2001, opens with a panoramic view of the Ring Road before embarking on a street-level exploration of a narrow strip of territory located just inside its northern perimeter. The more or less floating population encountered by Roland includes Albanian prostitutes, undocumented refugees from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and impoverished white working class men. In relation to the physical infrastructure of the Ring Road, one of the most interesting figures encountered is Gérard, a modern rag picker figure who actually lives inside one of the concrete pillars of a flyover section of the Boulevard Périphérique. As you can see here, he actually lives inside a caravan inside the pillar, but nonetheless, this is the, this is the setup. Um, so Ola's work presents the Ring Road as a kind of habitat, a city quarter in its own right, whose mixed population has repurposed its infrastructure in ways that were never envisaged by its planners. In a project that is exactly contemporary with Roland's, this is what the architectural collective Tomato Architect, um, so you say tomato, I say tomato, but anyway, Tomato Architect, have called um, La Ville du Périphérique, the city of the Ring Road. The construction of a neighborhood within, under, and around the Périphérique reverses the view from the road but also transforms a piece of national infrastructure into a transnational space, inhabited by a population that belongs neither to the wealthy white city centre, nor to the ethnically typed suburbs. The result is a peri-urban contact zone routinely used to define the national community. Thank you. Thank you very much, Douglas. It's a fascinating insight into the cultural topography of the of the contemporary world. We had a few sound issues there, but but we I think it sort of came and go, went a little bit, but I think we all we all got that. Okay, <laughs> sorry about that. Yes. No, not at not at all. Um, okay. So we can move on now to our third speaker for this little um, section. And um, I think our third speaker is really very well placed to speak to one of Rebecca's uh, provocations from this morning, that of expanding our range of methodologies and, and perspectives. Tori Dura is Assistant Professor at the School of Art History and Cultural Policy. With an interdisciplinary background in sociology and art history, her expertise is in arts management and cultural policy practice. And I'll just mention two uh, recent publications. Um, she is co-editor and contributor to two recent books, uh, The Routledge Handbook of Global Cultural Policy and Managing Culture, Reflecting on Exchange in global times. Thank you, Tori. 
Thanks very much for having me. There's so many of you I haven't met yet because I just started at UCD in January and I really appreciate the opportunity to meet you in, in this way. So um, today I'm going to present on the genesis of a research project conceived by myself and sociologist Dr. Peter Campbell from the University of Liverpool and uh, Aoife McGraw who specializes in dance and politics at Queen's University in Belfast. Um, I'm going to discuss the, begin by discussing the relationship of culture to the notion of national borders. I'll look at that in relation to the Irish border more specifically and raise the importance of cultural policy research in this space. And then talk a little bit about the research project that we are hoping to uh, get some funding to do. And I welcome any feedback and questions um, when that opportunity arises. So, um, the founding of the European Union was based on uh, what Katie Hayward calls the functionalist premise that cooperation across territorial borders, national borders, would provide an optimal response to shared problems. And a post-COVID, post-Brexit context makes facilitating cross-border movement and cooperation more fraught. And this is within the context of growing populist viewpoints, which have articulated borders as lines of defense and distinction between what belongs and what is foreign uh, to the national. Culture produces, reproduces, sustains, confirms, and or challenges what is inside and outside the borders, a sense of nation and the national. So the nation uh, and what is transnational may be imagined through political strategy and policy, but also through, as many have shown today, uh, novels, poetry, films, dance, theater, music, uh, broadcasting, collection practices, um, and the like. And these are signifying practices through which contact, communication, and cooperation, but also conflict and separation are marked, interpreted, imagined, and realized. The Irish border exemplifies and complicates uh, these conceptualizations. Um, as illustrated in this trailer of a performance piece by American artist Suzanne Lacey, which was created with participants from border communities in, in Ireland for the uh, Belfast International Arts Festival, the border is simultaneously invisible, open, lived, contested due to the island's long and complicated sociocultural and political history. These complications we've seen through the debates on Brexit and the policies to slow the spread of COVID. Um, when referring to our research as transnational, uh, we uh, not surprisingly met frustration by some practitioners and not by others. As the notion of the nation isn't fully agreed here and many could argue isn't agreed in other places. So for this reason, we're focusing on the term cross-border rather than transnational and still that requires uh, clarification. The strain, uh, to quote Seamus Heaney, of being in two places at once, of needing to accommodate two opposing conditions of truth simultaneously, the connection and disconnection and the terms with which people come to the reality of living and working in between and across Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland is well documented in artistic practice and scholarly analysis of that practice. Dance, such as Neither Either, an image of which is pictured here, created by Liz Roche Company in the Republic and Maiden Voyage Dance in Northern Ireland, considers the embodied experience of border crossing. And these um, symbolic, discursive, and identity aspects of borders are what scholar Katie Hayward refers to as conjoined with the hard functional aspects in the context of Ireland. 
and artist Dylan Quinn uh, illustrates this. I cross the invisible line on a weekly basis and have to sort through coins to identify legal tender for the region in which I happen to be present. Whilst its existence does not directly prevent me from undertaking work, it has an impact in a variety of ways which are not always apparent. And cross-border public and organizational cultural policies is where all of these elements come together, but we know really very little about them. They're very little studied. So um, cultural policy is often articulated as what governments choose to do, or in many cases not to do in relation to culture, but it's far more complex. What culture means in relation to policy is a much debated term. So we're focused on culture as a set of artistic practices or products rather than the anthropological signifying system definition, though this will inevitably uh, come into play for us. It involves policies that are initiated by state and non-state bodies. It's created by practitioners, so artists, arts and cultural managers, NGOs, um, public administrators, civil servants, politicians. It's written down, but it's also not written, so it can be implicit and practiced. And it takes place across supranational, national and local levels of government, as well as in uh, public administration and citizenry, the way businesses interact, et cetera. So um, it's regulatory, it can be legislative acts, uh, strategies and frameworks, the, the way funds are distributed and uh, subsidies are distributed. But there's growing recognition that uh, cultural policy is enacted and experienced quite personally, socially, physically, um, kind of through neither either as an illustration of that, and particularly, so in planning, tourism, um, arts and cultural uh, sector, et cetera. Seeing crop, uh, culture policy in a cross-border space, there's the cooperation that um, refers to relations residing between territorial and administrative authorities right along the proximity of the border. But we're equally considering the, the transnational or you know, cross-jurisdictional, which is a mouthful, cooperation of, that happens more broadly across the island. So there's no shared uh, recognized cultural policy explicitly written in a cross-border context on the island, but there are strong frameworks in place that facilitate and institutionalize cooperation in culture. And the multiple people um, and organizations uh, expand uh, in reach and scope as it takes place across the EU, um, the cross jurisdictions of uh, the Republic in Northern Ireland, the individual nations, as we'll say, the local and then the sectoral. So examples are in the institutional framework set up by the Good Friday Agreement, the European Union's peace and interreg programs, connections and shared projects between local authority arts offices in the border regions, the touring schemes that happen between the two arts councils and the research they, they kind of co-carry uh, out. Um, all island agencies like the Irish Museums Association, and um, then there's things like Dance Ireland, which isn't explicitly all island, but talks about itself and does a lot of all island work. Um, and then there's co uh, commercial and cultural businesses like Fighting Words that works in both areas, Smashing Times Theatre Company, and then the regular movement of artists, you know, sharing work, getting training and this kind of thing. 
So this work encourages economic and social roles for the professional arts that facilitate place branding through shared tourism and creative economy development of border regions, signify peace building and the development of cross-border ties that are cooperative, but also competitive at the same time. But much of our research on culture in the cross-border space looks at the role it plays in signifying and ameliorating cross-border relations. What we want to focus on is how administration is legislated, practiced, and performed, and thus what cultural values dominate why and under what circumstances. And we're going to, we hope to do this uh, through looking at the professional performing arts through three questions. What is the extent of existing cross-border cultural policy? What cross-border administrative practices, arts activities occur as a result of these policies? And what evidence is gathered and deployed regarding the outcomes and the implement of the implementation of these policies? So we are gonna work in partnership with stakeholders to trace the history, the values, the meanings, and the currency of culture in cross-border relations um, through documentary analysis uh, from the Anglo-Irish Agreement in 85, uh, interviews with people who operate in the space and a, and a series of public events. And I can talk in more detail about how that, how we hope that will work out and what exactly um, we will do in relation to that. Um, as Owen Doyle, Director of Services for Housing, Corporate and Cultural Affairs at Cavan County Council points out, Cultural differences, differences in the range of functions and misconceptions on both sides as to our respective goals in relation to local authority cross-border working is time consuming. It's time consuming to navigate these, but I feel at this stage, it is now a core part of our work. In order to deliver infrastructural and social change, we need to collaborate with other local authorities cross-border and across the EU. So cultural policy is structural, but it's also personal and social. And while providing two distinct national contexts for cultural governance and policy, the border equally marks sociocultural commonalities and shared histories and historical hangovers. So it requires great permeability, um, particularly in light of the peace process in which both sides are, you know, have been intertwined culturally, economically, and administratively. So it's really important, I think, to examine how cultural policy and governance are administered, legislated, practiced, and performed in order to understand uh, what ideologies dominate why and under what circumstances and how that shapes our cultural values. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Tari, for this really uh, insightful uh, paper on the structural and embodied uh, part of our, our current topic. Um, I, um, I'm really missing physical applause and the kind of embodied sound <laughs> that we can make usually when we're in the room together and there's a kind of abrupt transition between papers, I, I recognise that. I want to commend everybody for their fantastic timing by the way, I had my timer on here, I did not need it at all. Um, so I'd like to invite everybody now to, to just pose some questions, we've got five to ten minutes for questions and then we'll take our little coffee break so you can Put questions into the chat for me if you like and then I can read them out or if you'd like to ask a question you can you can just unmute yourselves I can't hang on maybe I can see everybody yeah or you can perhaps do a thumbs up or something so Anna would like to ask a question um, and I think perhaps Kathleen does as well do you Kathleen as well I could see you on no okay you're, you're unmuted I thought so okay Anna okay thank you uh, thanks uh, to all speakers for three very very good papers. Uh, my my first question is really for Kathleen. Um, 
listening to you, I was wondering what makes it possible that this tower is kind of um, transferred from a very different context in Belgium over to um, a black context in, in the uh, uh, University of Virginia, Virginia Un Union University. Is it the fact actually that this type of modernist architecture employs a non-political um, architectural language, which can be politicized in any way you want? Or why is it possible to transport uh, uh, this, this architecture apart, of course, from the trees, which is offensive, deeply offensive from today's perspective. But leaving that to one side, the tower itself, um, you know, perhaps lends itself to all kinds of interpretations. So thank you, Anna, for that very good question. And Virginia University Union for a while had bushes planted strategically so that you wouldn't see the sculptures it didn't like. Uh, but a recent uh, renovation of the building, I think in order to repair the building, they had to take down the bushes. Uh, I think that all architecture has multiple meanings and that they're, well, the meaning in architecture is elastic and often changes over time. Modern architecture, obviously through its abstraction, facilitates that. One of the things though that really interests me about this building is that as many of you know, there've been great controversy, controversies over the statues on Monument Avenue, which thankfully are finally coming down in Richmond. This is much, much, much taller and much, much, much more visible to many people traveling through uh, the city or around in their daily lives. Um, and so I think that regardless of architectural style, 165 feet, so that's about a a third that over 50 meters tall um, has made this a very prominent building. One of the things that's also interesting about it is that during World War II, it was used as an induction center for both black and white enlistees. I don't know very many public spaces in Richmond that were used for by both races that way, much less one on a historically black campus. So, um, in the commentary I've read so far, there's very little that the African-American community says about the style, but a great deal about the quality, that this had been a heralded building at the fair, that it was designed by internationally renowned architects, um, rather than that it's modern, uh, and rather than the details of its style, that it was very well built out of Belgian materials that symbolized both the French and Flemish speaking communities is noted at the time. But I'm hoping that uh, when I get into the archives, maybe I'll find a little more. I have some other sources I can read from here, but I can only give you, the other th archive I wanna see is of a foundation, uh, Rockefeller family foundation, uh, the that's not the name of it, but it was Rockefeller money that paid 100,000 of the cost. But we also know that a substantial amount of the money was raised in the, in the white community um, in Richmond. Thank you, Kathleen. Does anyone else have a question? If not, I might perhaps just direct a, a question at, at Tori, if I may, and uh, it, it perhaps might be a little bit of an, an, an obvious question, but I'm, I'm just wondering to what extent, uh, what role you would say the supranational level plays in these cross, uh, 
cross-border cooperations, especially in view of the impending looming Brexit? Oh, um, huge. <laughs> the quick answer is a huge role. Um, I mean, the, the funding uh, initiatives that go for, uh, you know, local authority exchanges in terms of um, you know, business development, regional development are um, huge. Uh, you guys all froze. Are you, am I still here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Someone nodded. Um, as well as um, the, you know, the peace, the peace funding and there last I heard there was going to be a peace plus that was going to con still continue in light of everything. Um, so that, that alone has facilitated a huge um, kind of cross-border exchange. And a, and a lot of the research focuses on, you know, the impact of that, um, and um, but and the fact that the significance that it exists, but not really how it's operationalized and how how all of that is navigated and negotiated and and um, the ways in which that, that funding uh, can be utilized uh, as a buffer for uh, sectors that 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 can suffer uh, on either side of the border. So there's a lot more to to unpick there. I think. Thank you so much. I just a slight warning that I seem to be unstable. My internet connection decided to go down right in the middle of your answer and I hope it's not going to do it again. I apologize for that. Does anyone else have a question? I can't. Oh yeah. Okay. I can see questions coming in the chat. So um, the first one is for Douglas from Anna. Can I just read out the question, Anna? Um, and she says, um, I presume that for Tomato Architects, it's the settlements beyond the ring road that are a pre-urban contact zone? Um, no. Um, Peri-urban is, it's, it's both sides and underneath. Um, you know, where there, there's, there, there are certain um, yep, sections of the ring road that, that are on, that, 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 are, that are flyover. Um, and they're trying to explore ways of possibly using that space. Um, in, uh, which is also the space that is in some cases inhabited um, by homeless people or, or, or used um, for um, uh, kind of uh, marginal activities, shall we say, such as prostitution or, dr or drug dealing. They're trying to think of ways of, of using that, that, that space. Um, so it's both sides and, and underneath. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Another question uh, for Douglas, this time from Zheng Feng. And um, the question is, to what extent um, do the urban centre and per peripheral area relate to each other, for example, in, in um, the question of daily commuting? And, and does that connection shape the space? Um, I mean, it, it, it's, um, there's a huge connection between um, the suburbs as a kind of dormitory area for, for, for the workforce of the, of the central city. But um, depending on how people commute, if, if they're in, you know, if they're not close um, to the, the city centre, most people use the RER, the short uh, distance, um, the local train um, system, which means that they completely bypass, if you like, the bypass, ironically, you know, they go straight from the suburb right into the centre of, 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 of the city. Um, to the extent that the, the city centre um, at, at uh, the city, the main local train Junction, suburban train junction in Léal and Châtelet Léal in the centre of Paris. That's been called the capital of the la capitale des banlieues. It's the capital of the suburbs. That's because it, it, if you like, it sucks in um, all the suburban workers and 
lets them emerge into 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 the central into central Paris to, to work there, and then does the opposite in in the, in, in the evening. Um, so a lot of commuters know they, they wouldn't actually cross they don't actually cross physically or consciously cross the, the ring road unless they would work right on its edge on on the inside um, so um it's it's a very strange um relationship really a dis distanced relationship for most for most people okay thank you and then one more question for you douglas we're just going to keep you keep you on your toes this is coming from shifra and she says, do you see any significance in the fact that protesting Gilets Jaunes were stopped at or on the Périphérique last year, thus attempting to transform it into a liminal space or border? Uh, yes, because Gilets Jaunes, I mean, they're high-vis jackets. I mean, it's one element, it's the, the Gilets Jaunes movement is very complicated, but one element is, if you like, a revolt of the provincial motorist or car, the rural car users. Um, who um, you know they're 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 um, the spark for a lot of the the um, the discontent were actually a series of um, ecological initiatives designed to reduce um, the use of the, the, the use the use of cars. Um, so um, it's it's very much about if you like um, internal combustion and and uh, mobility in a carbon based a carbon-based economy and not managing the transition into something else in a very thought through or joined up way. And that's, that's, that's what sparked off really the movement, which also connects to lots of other things, but it really, a lot of it is about the car and a lot of it is about oil, uh, you know, petrol prices. Um, so uh, yes, that the confrontation happened on the ring road and that the Gilets Jaunes, their gathering points in provincial, provincial towns and cities are, are roundabouts. And that, you know, their big symbolic attack was the roundabout around the Arc de Triomphe. The roundabout at the Arc de Triomphe is more important than the Arc de Triomphe, I think, in, in, that, in, in, in the, the kind of demonstrations in the center of, of, the, of the city. It's, it, the roundabout is a symbolic, you know, is, is a symbolic stake there, I think. And the Périphérique, if you like, is a big roundabout. So that's exactly why it, it's, it's extremely significant that that, you know, that that was a stopping point, really, I think. Fascinating, it's so interesting. I think, we've, I think we've probably just got time for one last question. Anna wants to ask another question. Uh, sorry, yeah, I don't want to dominate this, but it's just, uh, I've, I've been burning to ask this. Um, uh, this is again going back to Kathleen. Uh, the mural of the Belgian Congo, I'm really surprised that it's still there, okay? That it hasn't been. Um, is this because of ignorance? I can't imagine that people would be ignorant about how cruel, uh, you know, the the uh, Belgian uh, colonization of the Congo was. That ten million people were murdered by uh, uh, Belgium at the time. So, firstly, why is it still there? And secondly, I'd like to ask you: What do you think should happen? to murals such as these. I have a particular opinion. I think they should be taken down. There is no justification why uh, uh, monuments and memorials to mass murderers should occupy our public space. But that's my personal opinion. So I'm in favor of having all of these taken down and put into museum with some, some contextualization. But that's my personal view. So anyway, over to you. To start, my personal view is exactly the same. And you may know, and if you don't, I'll send you a copy that last uh, autumn, I published a piece in which as a relative of someone 
who gave the dedicatory speech for the Robert E. Lee Memorial on Monument Avenue, I called for it to be taken down. Um, it's very important to me to make public statements uh, as a descendant of slave owners and also of, of people who fought in the Union Army as well, that these come down. And that was, it was to research that piece that I went to Richmond and looked at the, uh, the Belgian Friendship Building. Um, so this is very personal for me and very political for me. And I strongly concur with you. I think that hiding those, that bas relief, it's, it's sculpture, not mural, behind the bushes uh, was enough for BUU at the time. And I agree with you completely. I believe it belongs in a museum. Uh, it's a not greatly significant, but marginally significant example of Belgian sculpture at the time and uh, has, I think, historic value where I don't think these things should be destroyed because I think it's important that we remember that people made them. Um, and I think VUU was really, really grateful to the Belgian government for doubling the size of their facilities and uh, for the esteem that this brought them uh, to have that kind of recognition as well. And so um, the, the woman you saw, the African-American woman you saw in the photograph is the niece of the first African-American president of BUU who became president just at the time that the building uh, was given. And she has expressed in public that she, as part of fundraising campaigns for bells for the tower, the Belgian government gave the bells to the Hoover Institute at Stanford University in recognition of Herbert Hoover's uh, work in giving, uh, in feeding Belgians after World War I. So VUU then uh, tried, uh, tried to raise money in the 21st century for, for bells, bells for peace, they called it. They did raise money for this. Um, she said that she thought that it had been given to BUU uh, by somebody who was embarrassed by the Congo. And it's interesting because the man who was really on the ground and gave all the speeches repeatedly makes uh, comments about how important interracial harmony is. And I have a list of books by him that I need to order from Interlibrary Loan when, when that's possible to see what other comments he made about uh, the Belgian colonial regime in the Congo. He stayed in the United States after the war. He was quite an important Flemish novelist under a pseudonym. And I've been talking to friends in Belgium and they don't know anything about his opinions on race or colonization, but it's something that I'm going to have to investigate. Okay, thank you so much. Um, this is going to be a great project and I know that we'll want to, to hear about that uh, again when you're able to get over to the States into your archive, Kathleen. Can I just um, stop that now and um, suggest that we take a five minute uh, comfort coffee break and that we come back at, at 10 to and have our last two papers and closing discussion. And it's my great pleasure to welcome first of all Stefan Erik uh, with his beautiful uh, Bruegel and, and uh, modern architecture background there. Uh, Stefan is currently an Irish Research Council postdoctoral fellow with the Humanities Institute of Ireland and he has very wide ranging interests from literature to film, theatre, space and the built environment with a special focus on the GDR and amongst many recent publications is his 2018 monograph Der Dialektische Kleist, The Dialectical Kleist, but he's currently working on a fascinating project entitled Socialist Space and Modernism in East German Literature and Visual Culture and today he's going to talk about the international style in transnational discourse. 
So over to you, Stefan. Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, and it's uh, it's been a lovely day so far. So I hope I'll I'll, I'll be able to carry you through the kind of the afternoon low. <laughs> um, so um, yes, I'm I'm going to do two things um, um, briefly today. Uh, first is uh, to kind of very briefly explain why I think uh, modernist architecture in particular can and probably should be explored um, as a means of transnational discourse, uh, and second. Uh, um, I'm going to uh, talk about what I think this can deliver for humanities research uh, and in my case modern language literary uh, and film studies in particular uh, and this is uh, a pathway I'm approaching as, as part of a research grant at the moment so kind of taking my my local uh, pr uh, project uh, focusing on former East Germany uh, uh, into a kind of transnational sphere as it were. So first, why, uh, why modernist architecture in transnational discourse? Uh, as uh, architectural historian uh, Florian Urban very simply put it, uh, modernist housing is the most widespread architectural scheme of the 20th century. As he further noted, uh, the serial apartment blocks that relied on, quote, first the development of standardized design and industrial building techniques that profoundly changed the nature of residential construction, and second, a belief in egalitarian living conditions as a social goal and the paternalistic state as its most effective promoter. Mass housing rested on a conviction that state authorities were to take responsibility for the welfare of their citizens and counteract social polarization." End quote. In Europe, obviously, the Second War, World War then uh, had the determining impact. The destruction of entire urban landscapes fueled uh, the hope for renewal and materialized planning visions in combination with the buildup of a new social and political order in some regions, while technological innovations like aerial photography allowed for new views of a city that supported a planner's vision. Uh, the Newtown movement of the 1950s and 60s that can be found across the globe can be seen as a peak of this concept and modernist mass housing would then start its global triumph afterwards. Um, Newtowns and larger states were conceived in a planning euphoria in the context of a correlating ideological and political rivalry on both sides of the Iron Curtain, specifically in a European context, inspired by internationally successful role models and shared welfare state traditions. In both systems, one can find an interconnection of vision and planability and the active role of the state and the trend of expansive planning and building. So, to wrap that point up, I think uh, even after this brief description, it is quite clear to say that modernism can, has to be seen as an international uh, phenomenon and it's also called the international style for, for something. Uh, and uh, it can be found in practically every country in the world. And as you can see in my background, uh, they sometimes even populate uh, 16th century paintings. Um, so second, the actual point, uh, why is this uh, interesting for uh, transnationally focused modern language or generally literature, literary and film research? Um, in the way that I want to approach it, uh, my research would compare and contrast a range of transnational and trans-ideological responses uh, to post-war modernist planning, building and reconstruction, thereby exploring contrasting visions of modernist space in European textual and cinematic discourse discourses of the Cold War period. And uh, based on my personal linguistic and cultural expertise, I've so far chosen East Germany, France, and the UK uh, as my primary case studies. And uh, I can talk 
more about this selection if, if you want me to later. In um, transnationally doing so, this approach, I argue, will contribute to a deeper and more nuanced understanding of the impact of post-war modernist housing projects on the everyday life experiences of urban residences during the Cold War by drawing on case studies of typologically similar housing estates situated in contrasting ideological milieus. It will combine uh, the inherent architectural logic of a built environment with the way it was perceived by users and charged with cultural and political meaning by writers and filmmakers, aiming for a comprehensive insight into how post-war modernist architecture impacted on the cultural production of, some of different European nations within their respective post-war narratives. Um, I will thus analyze this similar tension in terms of contested expressions of political ideology and as defining narratives about, about post-war nation building, national recovery and Cold War competition between East and West. Um, the literary filmic and filmic examples um, sit, in my opinion, suggest not only uh, national specificities, but also a greater range of cross-ideological and transnational consonances that I think scholars have hitherto uh, acknowledged. And that's why in the long run, uh, I hope to, by doing so, I hope to contribute a critical humanities perspective, if you like to call it that way, on urban planning, public health, and cultural heritage that goes beyond conventional empirical research. So, so or more easily or simply put, using film and literature to understand how people have actually experienced uh, social modernist housing. Um, topically, uh, this can and should of course be extended far beyond Europe. Uh, and uh, I want to briefly touch upon two things that I've been thinking about recently. Um, one aspect, uh, and that's kind of touching on Anna's paper from this morning a bit, uh, predominantly within Western and capitalist contexts, uh, is the use of modernism and uh, modernist and postmodern social housing for dystopian narratives, especially in film. Uh, as the urban studies scholar Guy Baton has argued, quote, uh, the gradually shrinking appeal of a socialist utopia and its replacement with a globalized free market as a revanchist utopia less socialist utopian thinking in a state of disarray towards the end of a previous century. Utopian thinking, both as a literary and political genre, has been rendered marginal in contemporary political practices. Urban dystopia or Stadtschmerz, so city pain, uh, is now prevalent in critical Western thinking about city and society. It is concluded that the declining political impact of critical urban research is caused partly by its lack of engagement with crafting imaginative alternative futures for the city, end quote. And I think especially in some kind of even more popular um, um, dystopian films, like something like The Hunger Games, where you have the capital as this modernist and, and postmodern uh, big uh, city, uh, I, where, which we've mostly shot in, in French postmodern social housing estates from the 1980s, uh, I think, my interpretation so far is that they are kind of depicted as a, as a nightmare from a neoliberal American and somewhat British in a sense, uh, private property point of view. So, so kind of you're having a dystopia, if you like, from a capitalist gaze, uh, and which does not necessarily represent the reality, the lived reality of these uh, urban environments. Um, and um, yeah, and um, 
the other as and final aspect I want to mention is the, in my then admittedly limited perspective, uh, more positively connotated role of modernist architecture for, for instance, African and Southeast Asian post-colonial independence. Um, and here, um, I think investigating the interconnections between architecture, urbanism and social development in the context of, of post-colonial independence uh, could, could be very interesting uh, by addressing uh, architectural concepts and their spatial adaptations in terms of their relative uh, relevance for contemporary urban society, uh, which then can counter and should counter Eurocentrist concepts of modernist architecture and examine how local modern, modernisms emerged, what role international discourse played in their development and what solutions they offer today. Similarly, uh, what promises can be found in the architectural concepts, what values and ideas underlie them, and what narratives are inscribed in the design. And finally, how do architecture and urban design that develop from modernist concepts reach beyond the local contexts to impact the broader global discourse? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Stefan. Perfect timing. Excellent. Okay, um, going to move on now. Um, lastly, but definitely not least, today our final speaker, um, Samantha Martin McAuliffe, who's Assistant Professor at the School of Architecture, Planning and Environmental Policy. Uh, Samantha's an architectural historian. He specializes in classical antiquity, the phenomenology of landscapes, and the reciprocity of the built environment and food. And this strand culminated in her latest monograph, Food and Architecture at the Table. Um, I haven't had a chance to read that yet, but that sounds absolutely fascinating. Today, though, she's going to talk about another one of her current projects, which um, focuses on Kenya. And I'd like to also take the opportunity to, to welcome as well a distinguished guest from the Kenyan Embassy who's here with us today. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to you, Samantha. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so thank you so much um, uh, for inviting me to participate in today's symposium. What can a house in the Kenyan countryside teach us about climate change? This was the question that we asked ourselves in order to focus our 2019 pilot initiative, which was called Crossroads of Change in the Global South. The WE is a quite a large collective of educators from UCD and NYU in the States who were motivi made it, motivated by a desire to enhance cross-disciplinary approaches to global challenges. So in this brief talk, I'm just going to do something a little bit different, uh, and I'm going to talk to you a lot more about the practical and hands-on approach that our project embodies. Earlier in 2018, I'd been invited by the Samburu County government. Uh, Samburu is in northern Kenya, and they asked me to come to co-create a project on vernacular architecture in the region. And I just want to say now, you know, how grateful I am that some of my um, Kenyan collaborators are, were able to um, support us today by, by joining us on the webinar. So I really appreciate that. Our official hosts in the Samburu were the Deputy Governor, Julius Lisitu, and Dr. Irene Sene, who is pictured here in the second row beside me. Um, she is the Minister of Culture, Gender, and, and Youth Affairs for the Samburu County Government. And then the linchpin of this whole collaboration is Haile Lisitu, who is seen here as well in the front wearing the hat. And Haile is a Samburu tribal elder who has long been instrumental to community engagement in the region. In fact, it was Haile's original idea to bring together academics and local members of the Samburu tribe to ask trenchant questions about the relationship between architecture 
and climate change and cultural resilience. To this end, we devised a two-week experiential laboratory within a nature reserve in the Samburu Lowlands, which are about 400 kilometers north of Nairobi. And from the start, we envisioned this whole project as an active learning initiative where locals, in particular Samburu women, would teach us how to build a nomadic pastoralist lowlands house from the ground up. Traditionally built with saplings, branches, clay, and dung, Samburu lowland dwellings called Enkaji are typically clustered together to create a manada, a homestead, or a compound. Seen here. Uh, I also want to note uh, to everyone that all of the images, the drawings and the photographs that, you, that I'm showing you today, these were all created in the last few months by our, our UCD group, um, a majority of them, especially the drawings by, by final year architecture students. So the key motivation in this ongoing project from an academic perspective is the opportunity to recalibrate the architecture curriculum. In devising our pilot last year, we hoped that under the guidance of our Kenyan colleagues, we'd be able to begin to question, adapt, and reimagine our pedagogies, enabling us to engage with transnational connections, which shift away from dominant Eurocentric narratives. We planned for this project to be a vehicle for familiarizing postgraduate students with vernacular architecture and the history of settlements in one particular area of East Africa. Simultaneously, we wanted to engage them in a hands-on way with a number of topics in design education, for example, passive ventilation and the incorporation of renewable materials. Overall, this collaboration has been a hugely enriching and rewarding experience. And the pilot ultimately became something much more than we originally anticipated. But straightforwardly, it's a very powerful vehicle for understanding the intersecting dimensions of climate change. And I'll say a bit more about this. Specifically, while the Samburu House is highly germane to the history of vernacular architecture and the study of design pedagogies, it also has an immense amount to teach us about facets of the climate emergency that are often deemed too abstract to represent, such as ecological conservation, climate migration, water scarcity and gender equality. Ultimately, what this pilot demonstrated is that to truly understand the complex societal challenges facing our planet today, we must be able to cut across both disciplinary and national boundaries. In my view, the greatest stakes as well as opportunities in the future of the architecture curriculum lay here. Samburu is situated in the Great Rift Valley of North Central Kenya, and it is a landscape of stunning beauty that is also on the precipice of rapid change due to environmental degradation and industrial development. Importantly, our team was led, taught, and supervised by local women who are the traditional builders and Samburu culture. Although it is often labeled traditional architecture, the vernacular Samburu house is neither timeless nor is it a calcified model of stability. These dwellings do indeed embody the customs of their builders, and yet they simultaneously reflect the changing conditions of the landscape. Women remodel, adapt, and refurbish their houses to accommodate changes in familial relations and in response to decay and deterioration. They are constantly innovating and experimenting with the design of their homes and integrating new materials. 
Increasingly, building components are recycled and reused, and there exists a contradiction, a tension between time-honored elements and newer materials in the construction process. This is more the case now that local natural resources are growing scarce. Animal hides and painstakingly woven sisal mats, like what you see here, are the long-established roofing components, but plastic sheeting is light, cheap, and now readily available. Plastic, of course, keeps out the rain and it also saves precious time, but it also precludes ventilation. Excessive smoke inhalation is a determining factor in respiratory illnesses in the region. Useful yet polluting, plastic is a global problem and ultimately an unsustainable building material, not just in some borough, of course. Yet designers can offer new approaches to this issue that have plasticity to them. That is, we can work together to find ways to adapt this problem, drawing upon and integrating indigenous knowledge. Sophisticated from a design perspective, the Samburu House offers a window into how builders in Kenya adapt to environmental change. So as a way to sort of round out the discussion, I'm gonna zoom out, since we're on Zoom, and give you a wider perspective in a literal sense. In advance of our visit, we poured over ordnance maps, aerial photos, and satellite imagery, anything we could find, um, in an attempt to gain an understanding of the Samburu landscape. These Western cartographic methods and tools offer powerful vantage points and clearly communicate layers of complex information, but they can also, of course, harbor deceit. Put plainly, this preparatory work armed us with big data, but endowed us with a false sense of omniscience, bringing new relevance to Constable's comment that we see nothing truly till we understand it. Once we were in the field on the ground, it became immediately apparent that what is truly knowable about the Samburu countryside lies beyond Western cartography. The lived experience of this remote rural landscape brings with it a sophisticated, situated understanding that resists quantification and embraces contradiction. And in fact, the tranquil rurality that is suggested by still photographs of the Samburu belie its near constant state of transformation. The Manyata, which served as the site of our laboratory, which is pictured here, is a hive of activity that typically reshapes itself at a rate that outpaces updates to web mapping services. So what this means is that by any time that we see a manata on Google Maps or Google Earth, it's likely to have been remodeled and even superseded more than once. So it's certainly not anything close to real time. And the question is, how do we document and how do we map this kind of inhabitation of the landscape? And that remains an open question. A team member from UCD refers to the Samburu tribe as, quote, a community of ecologists because of their intuitive and encyclopedic knowledge of the landscape, not only its flora and fauna, but also its topography. So I'm going to conclude by leaving you with a short anecdote of this. One day, our principal interpreter, Saddam, who's pictured here, called to our campground, which was about six kilometers from our building lab. And he casually mentioned that he knew that we hadn't visited the lab in the village that morning. And when we asked him what led him to say this, his response was that our absence was revealed by the way our footprints from the previous day cast shadows in the sand. This comment lays bare the contradiction between a deep situated knowledge of the region and a perceived omniscience of the digital field.
So I am both daunted and humbled by the questions and possibilities that this project has foregrounded for us. But the rewards of this collaboration are tremendous and therefore we're continuing onward. Thank you. Thank you so much, Samantha. That's a fantastic paper and a really, really brilliant, a brilliant project. Okay, we've got five minutes or so for some questions before we go to our concluding discussion. So I'd just like to invite any questions from the audience. Please either unmute yourself and speak or just pop the question into the chat. I've done that. Thank you very much for, for your interesting uh, papers. Uh, my, my initial question goes to Samantha. You, talked, you touched on the recalibration of the architectural curriculum. And I've been wondering, uh, you know, apart from the broader reflection on climate change, which should in, in probably affect all teaching in all subjects nowadays. Yeah. In what way uh, uh, has it recalibrated your curriculum? One thing that has come to my mind is perhaps that these, these dwellings are transitory mm -hmm. and when they are dismantled, they don't leave an imprint. The idea is that they disappear or that they, they don't scar, I should say, they don't scar the landscape. Is that something that, that, that you'd like the next generation of architects to think about? Thanks. Uh, that, that's a really interesting um, question. I, it, there's, a, there's a few points that I, I could come back to, but I'll try to just focus on, on answering that and going a little bit more into the curriculum. What's really interesting, I didn't bring it in, but um, they don't scar the landscape, these, the Manada settlements, but they do leave traces. And so you can, as you start to read satellite images over time, you can start to see these kinds of vestigial pathways that, that, they, that they leave. And you can read how old they are once you understand the rate of deterioration. Um, and that's, that's very interesting. They, the Samburu tribe, like many, but not all um, tribes in Kenya, uh, was transhuman for many, you know, for, for many, many hundreds, not thousands of years. And then they were forced to settle during the British colonial rule. But now, of course, they're becoming highly mobile again because of climate migration. And so this is, they're really at this sort of tipping point now um, in terms of mobility. But going back to the curriculum, I gave, <laughs> I gave a a, a longer talk um, on this in, in Cambridge last autumn and to the in the architecture school and um, again I was the last speaker <laughs> I don't know what that means uh, but I did say at the end I really think that we're, 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 we've reached this point where we have to re we have to understand and accept that we cannot maintain the status quo in the architecture curriculum any longer it is almost entirely, uh, certainly at UCD and at majority of other institutions based on Western and sometimes North American, but Western European primarily buildings and architects. And there's, 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 there's a twofold problem to that. You know, there's, there's actually, it's a, it's a multi-pronged problem because I could go on to lots of other issues with student mobility and student representation. Um, but, we not only can we not remain in these disciplinary silos when we're addressing these large global issues so not just climate change but gender equality biodiversity loss which is intimately linked of course with climate change but also sustainable city planning um we we also 
need to to think outside of our the, the the eurocentric perspective that universities tend to hold within those disciplinary silos and i think a lot of the the there's there's a lot of in, incredible sensitive intuitive knowledge um, that those who are usually do not have a seat at the table uh, can provide us in re-understanding some of these problems that we're addressing, but sometimes obliquely within design studios. So I think we're missing out on a lot of really important conversations by not bringing more people in into the quite literally into the studios. I don't think that something like global architecture should remain just within the purview of history and theory. I think that it actually should be supported uh, and used to diversify the architecture curriculum. Thank you so much. We have a question uh, now for Stefan from Roisin, and um, if I might just read that out. Uh, she asks, Stefan, are there any examples of positive representations of modernist public housing in European cinema or literature? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, um, there are. Um, most of all, of course, kind of the East German, but mostly actually Eastern European former socialist works are actually in in their majority more positive, positively inclined towards it, because they believe in ultimately the kind of the, the socialist promise they 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 might might be able to deliver. Um, and then they, in the East German case, that I know best. Uh, it's mostly more about that uh, seeing that the way it's actually then built, so kind of leaving out all the kind of great pieces or not building the theater next to it, uh, or kind of mostly then cultural and leisure infrastructure is being criticized Then saying, okay, you're not doing it properly, but there's never a criticism of the architecture as such. Um, and that only slightly shifts uh, towards in a more holistic approach uh, in the 1980s where then feel like, okay, we see our city centers are rotting away because we've only been investing money into, into modernist housing. Uh, we need to find an approach to both re revive the historical infrastructure and combine it with uh, modernist housing, or even then develop kind of a postmodern uh, approach to kind of build modernist uh, or sort of prefab housing uh, um, with saddle roofs uh, and uh, into historic centers. But, um, but even um, Western, so for instance, the, the films by Jacques Tati, which some of you might know um, from the 1960s, there I think it's a, it's a very playful approach. So you can, you can read them more negatively if you like, but to me, for instance, something like Playtime, uh, which is maybe his most, most famous film, is, uh, is more about, okay, nobody's, it's, modernism is too intellectual and too abstract, and nobody has taught the people how to use this, in, this architecture. And, and, and urban space, rather than saying it's, it's wrong to do it that way. Uh, and as soon as the people kind of find out how to be playful around this kind of architecture, then uh, they actually uh, enjoy um, the all the international style buildings in the film. Um, and same with a film like Mon Oncle, so it, it can be fun. Um, Stefan, I have a question from Anna, which is, does the failure of social housing in the collective imaginary have something to do with the scale of these developments? Um, I think, well, it's definite, um, to some extent, yes. I think uh, it's one major criticism is that it's kind of the, the, the totality of this sort of post-war planning vision that society can actually be planned and organized 
centrally uh, that that was perceived as as a kind of kind of very late total enlightenment project of mass education and kind of and mass society in general that that was one of the reasons why it failed because people realized that they don't actually want to be part of uh, uh, of a, a totalizing egalitarian society but that they actually want to have more individual spaces or at least more a say in how to design public spaces uh, because many of these concepts and I said, yes, you can actually design all the green spaces or the children playgrounds and then eventually most that never happened. And even though there were kind of smaller protests of people just doing guerrilla gardening or uh, children designing their own playgrounds, these were usually then demolished, uh, although they learned towards that to the end. So the 1980s projects are much better in kind of getting the public in. But I think the sort of more both kind of built and as well perceived totality of these huge uh, estates uh, all over Europe. Uh, that's kind of a unisono criticism uh, that you can find from 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 Italy to 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 France and as across Eastern Europe, where it's still very much a kind of the normal housing form. Uh, when I talk, presented something similar in a in a colloquium for uh, East, Eastern and South Southeast uh, European researchers. Who had well, mostly people who were present who grew up in these uh, these huge housing estates? They they completely all agreed and related that this is the kind of fun thing, uh, but also not something they see as problematic uh, as 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 we Western Europeans perhaps perceive them to be. Uh, so I think that's yeah interesting to compare, and which is why I think it's important to get different voices uh, together and see what are kind of the uh, cultural semantics surrounding these these estates. Okay, thank you. I'm not I'm keeping an eye on the time here, but I, we've got just a couple more. I've got one more for Stefan and then two for um for uh, Samantha after that and then perhaps we'll we'll move to the closing discussion if that's okay. Yeah. So another question for you Stefan from Joe, which is from what you've seen, does the current revival of modernist and brutalist architecture involve the utopian ideals or is it mostly aesthetic? I think um, I would be inclined, without having given it too much thought, honest, to be honest, I would be inclined to say that it's a bit nostalgic. It's a, it's a, it's a nostalgic for maybe the egalitarian and social utopia that was attached to it, because we don't really have that anymore. Uh, and it is, it is very much aesthetic, uh, aestheticized, because if you, if you have contemporary uh, film uh, visual productions of any sort that are set in a kind of 70s uh, uh, brutalist environment. It usually looks much better than the original real architecture would have looked. Uh, so there, there, there is a kind of uh, posterior improvement uh, being done to these architectures. Uh, and I also think it's interestingly a very uh, middle class movement mm -hmm. to not necessarily so in, in a research group that I'm in in Germany, um, where it's mostly East German uh, kind of lay architectural historians who have grown up in these estates kind of are more interested in saying, we didn't hate it and we just want to get that point across and we would still move into these because it, we had a nice life in there and we kind of tried to fight against a more Western colonized opinion that we all lived in the kind of socialist ghetto, uh, to put it that way. Uh, but it's, um, 
but I think the it yeah I would I would more say it's a it's a nostalgia about both about the utopianism in a sense of what these uh, designed uh, what these designs wanted to achieve and mostly failed. But I think that there is a fascination with the idea behind it, which is also why I'm doing it to be honest. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, a quick comment from Connor, which is uh, for Stefan Visconto Rocco and his brothers also uh, depicts ambiguity around positive negative aspects of social housing, Rossellini's Rome, Open City too. So a comment mm -hmm. there for you. Okay, and now a comment for uh, from Soila, I hope I'm not horribly mispronouncing your name there for Samantha, which is just to thank Samantha for the presentation and to mention the Samburu, like the Maasai, are nomadic communities. We move primarily because we are pastoralists. Our livestock need water and grass. Climate change challenge. <laughs> okay, and then um, a last question. Now I think this will be the last question of this session from Enrica uh, for Samantha. Connecting to the nomadic aspect of your talk, do you get a sense that the situated and nomadic knowledge of territory by the inhabitants translated into a human identity very linked to place or would that identity be more open and porous to other cultures, more transnational in a way? Thanks for that. This, uh, and thanks again, sort of for, for attending. Um, going back to, to, to your comment actually about the no, 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 nomadic communities, there's there's these really interesting tensions that um, lie beneath um, that, 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 that question. Um, uh, as, I, as I mentioned um, at, the, at the end of the, of the paper, the Samburu were primarily nomadic. They've become more nomadic pastoralist over the generations. And there's different reasons for that, um, but it's really important to remember that so much of the, the the land which was traditionally uh, for for grazing and, and pasturage of, of animals in this case both cattle and and camel in northern kenya um was was changed dramatically because of the sort of the the voracious cartographic um sort of interventions by 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 the uk under colonial rule and that that sort of loose and and porous um, and expansive use of land was changed dramatically, and people became more settled. And that's when boundaries um, became a lot more became much more visible and firm um, in a cartographic sense. But it's also really important to acknowledge, and I don't think people always understand looking from the outside, is how incredibly diverse Kenya is. And there are many tribes and many, many different languages. And what's really interesting is that for a long period of time, there, have, there has been also this porosity, going back to the question about, about cultures and different tribal cultures interacting. So for example, the Rendili and the Turkana are both large um, tribes that are are in close proximity, adjacent, and offer uh, often are in overlapping um, the used land in an overlapping way in northern Kenya. There's a lot of tribal conflict too, but there's also um, the opposite of that and sharing and and bringing families together. The Dorobo is another really good example. Um, they're not a tribe, but they are. Uh, that you, you find groups of Dorobo in many parts of Kenya and you see them in what is um, Samburu County today and they often will intermarry. 
and the languages can be very different. Um, and the one of the photographs at the very end that was taken on the GoPro of the motorcycle was by one of our key assistants. And he lives in Samburu and his and his family is there, but he is a Israel. So you do see this 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 um this reciprocity between different tribes that I don't think is always acknowledged in, in wider circles. Um but of course, all this is changing now because of globalization too. And one of the things I didn't get a chance to, to go into, but I'll just end with is that there has been some really interesting work more recently um, from an anthropological perspective on the um, movement of people out of Samburu, especially young men. Um, there, Samburu very much identify um, with their land and culture. And there is this sense of sort of mag magnetism of pulling people back. And my colleagues and collaborators there will talk about this um, a lot, but there's also the, the, the pull of the, the, of the city. And there's a, there's a guy at um, Harvard in anthropology, George Mew, who's dedicated all of his research to this um, in the first half of his career to studying the pool of the, of, of the city and also the tourist zones along the coast of Kenya, especially for, um, with regards to some young Samburu men. So they will immigrate to the coast and to the cities. And you're, start, you're starting to see that a lot, a lot more. So that's sort of a different um, layer, a different chapter in this, this long history of, of mobility. Thank you so much. Um, I think we, we need to really stop it there. We did need an extra couple of minutes for the questions, but I think it was well worth it what value uh, we have had from these uh, short papers today. So thank you very, very much to all the contributors in this session. It really was fantastic. And um, I want to hand back to Anna now for the final discussion. Thank you. I think it has been um a really good first internal event that was the idea that we would have a kind of a, a small scale internal event to set the agenda to learn from each other to also find out about our own research because that's always something that falls by the wayside in what we do that we kind of interact as colleagues but we rarely have the time to actually talk about our research with each other so i think that's already been a very useful uh, uh, exercise. So you can think about what kind of events you would like us to do in the coming months and you can send your proposals to the Humanities Institute um, email address. 